Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Awesome. Um, i got a question for you as we kick off. Where do you want to be in life by the end of the year? Where do you want to be in life by the end of the year? Uh, especially let me ask the Christians in the room, let me tweak it a little bit. Where do you want to be in your Christian life by the end of the year? What do you want your Christian life to look like? What do you want it to be filled with? What do you want to be doing or not doing as a Christian by the end of the year? It's a helpful question because it focuses us on what matters most so that you avoid drifting aimlessly or settling for something that's too small. Here's the next question to the Christians in the room. Where do you want our church to be? What do you want Salt Church to be by the end of the year? What do you want Salt Church to look like, to be filled with, to be doing or not doing by the end of the year? This question focuses us on what matters so that we together can make sure we don't drift or settle for something too small. Let me give you a a picture. Imagine if your Christian life and if Salt Church looked like this. We all had a deep, deep sense of peace with God. We just felt so safe and so secure in God our Father's love. And that flowed out into peace with each other. We were this welcoming community that welcomed each other into this rich, united harmony and fellowship. And we grew as Christians. We were stronger in our beliefs and our character. We were confident and unmoved. And we were being transformed by God in in miraculous, extraordinary ways. And we weren't scared. In a world of threats and fear, we were calm. We were fearless. We were living to please God alone. And the Holy Spirit was energizing us, strengthening us, comforting us, lifting our spirits so that we could keep going when it was hard or when we were weary. And we grew in number. We told people to trust Jesus and they listened and they did. People joined us into the kingdom of God. People climbed into the lifeboat and they loved it. Now, isn't that an attractive picture? What I've just described to you is Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Have a look with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This verse, this this picture I just painted, is God's design for us. What God wants for you, for Soul Church, for all Christians, and all churches everywhere Of course, we don't fully look like this yet, uh, but the danger is that we're okay with that fact. The danger is when we settle for less than what God has planned. And it can feel unattainable. And so we can become content and satisfied far too easily with far too little. But these Christians don't. So why are the Christians in Acts 9 different to how we often are? That's what we're going to explore tonight. What do we need to do? What do we need to be to be that kind of church and those kinds of Christians? And let me encourage you as we explore this, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're probably trying to work out if Christianity is for you. And it might be that you've seen some really bad examples of Christianity, of Christians and churches that look nothing like the picture I just painted for you. 
This is going to be really helpful for you as we dig into this part of the Bible, because you're going to see a great example of what it's meant to look like. And let me ask you the same question if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I don't want to leave you out. Where do you want to be in your life by the end of the year? What do you want your life to look like, to be filled with? What do you want it to be doing or not doing? My guess is, however you would answer that question, and I think it will be different for all of us, my guess is that you believe you can choose to fill your life with whatever matters to you. Because that's what our culture teaches us. It teaches us that we can come up with our own path, we can find our own meaning, you know, the captain of your own ship, the captain of your own life. And that's what we're taught, and that's what we love to do. We love to do that, to find our own path, find our own meaning. We love to do that until we don't love it anymore. Because it's pictured as this exhilarating, freeing quest and journey. But the reality is, it's the cause of so much anxiety because there's 10 billion options to choose from, and you have to choose every single step of the way. And the reality is, it can be really dangerous. When you go hiking and you make your own path, you find yourself bush bashing and you can end up in some very dangerous places. Acts 9 is God's design for you too, for your life too. And God's way frees us from the pressure and the stress of creating our own meaning. And it frees us from the wrongness of ignoring our maker's plans for us. So how do we do it? How do we be the people, the Christians, the churches that God wants us to be? I'm going to show you three things. The first thing is how Christians face opposition. So Saul, we last saw, was on the road to Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus hunting down Christians. And then he became a Christian when Jesus appeared to him. And here's the next thing that happens for Saul. Grab a look. Acts 9 verse 19. Have a look with me. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is monumental change that happens for Saul. Jesus has transformed Saul from an enemy to a servant and from a persecutor to persecuted. Because look what happens next in verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. He escapes from this, this murder attempt. He escapes to Jerusalem where the rest of the apostles are. And while he's there, this is what happens to them. Verse 29. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And it's told here so matter-of-factly that you can miss how hectic this is. This is not like death threats. This is murder attempts on his life. And this is a level of opposition that we are unlikely to ever face in Australia for being Christians. But it is the daily experience of many Christians and many churches across the world, even today. And some version of it will come your way if you're a Christian. Because that's what Jesus says to Saul. Flick back a page, have a look at verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. 
The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is what Saul has signed up for in serving Jesus. And this is the same thing Saul says to us. He says to us from 2 Timothy 3, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And God's design for you, if you're a Christian, is a godly life. So you will be persecuted. So when opposition comes, how do we face it? Well, notice what the first Christians do. The first Christians fear God most. They're unafraid of people because they fear God more. Saul seems fairly unfazed by these murder attempts on his life. And when he joins the apostles in Jerusalem, have a look in verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. They're bold here. They're fearless here. And what's the source of this fearlessness? It's verse 31. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. It's the fear of the Lord that does this. It's easy to be afraid of people when people are big and God is small. When the voice of your opponents is louder than the voice of your God. The boldness Saul shows, the boldness that we wish we had, it comes from fearing God most and caring about his approval most of all. Have a think for yourself. Whose approval do you care most about? Of all the people in your life, is it God's approval that you care most about? And what does fear here mean? Fear doesn't mean being terrified. It doesn't mean being terrified of God, because if we trust Jesus to save us, then God is our Father. Jesus teaches us to call God our Father. So it's not terror, it's, it's reverent awe is probably a better way to describe it. Reverent awe, it's realizing that our Father is in heaven, and He commands billions upon billions of angels, and He will judge the living and the dead, and He has infinite power. That's the Father that we call on. When you face opposition, fear God the most. And the second thing is, use wisdom. Because notice each time Saul's life is threatened, the Christians don't just sit by and let it happen. They make a wise plan to take him out of harmless way. Fearing God doesn't mean you just make foolish choices about what you expose yourself to. You take no responsibility. You make wise choices. Uh, if, if boldness or courage is what we're aiming for, the opposite of that is being a coward. But the other opposite of that is being reckless or being foolish. We're aiming for boldness and courage. And I think that's what's going on for the apostles. There's this weird thing in verse 26. Have a look at verse 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Now what's going on here is, is Saul just showing them up because he fears God, but here they are fearing people. He's showing them up because he's more godly than them. That might be what's happening, but more likely, I think that they're being wise. Because what's the best way for Saul, the persecutor, as far as they know, he's still a persecutor. What's the best way for him to infiltrate the top leaders of the new early church? 
Surely it's by pretending that he's become a Christian too. Then you'd be right in there. Then you could capture all of them and take them to prison. It's wise that they don't believe he really is a disciple and they'll, until they hear and see proof. So we use wisdom. Opposition will come. How do Christians face it? We fear God most. We use wisdom. And this is why they are that verse 31 church that lives in the fear of the Lord. This is how we can be that verse 31 church. The second thing they do is have peace. Uh, Here's how Christians have peace. Uh, Peace, I think, feels like a bit of a tacky Christmas kind of word. You know, it's like doves flying and soft harps playing. But that's not what peace means here. When it says in verse 31, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Mary enjoyed a time of peace. What's the peace there? It's not doves flying. It's a ceasefire. Or more than that, it's the end of a war. It's a compromise. Or more than that, it's reconciliation and harmony. It's when lifelong enemies embrace as friends. This is a great picture of peace. This is a photo of an American man during World War II who befriended these two Japanese soldiers in the middle of World War II. That's what peace is in the Bible. It's when lifelong enemies embrace as friends. And peace in verse 31 is first of all about peace between us and God. It's the reason that Christians fear God and are fearless in the face of opposition is because we have peace with God through Christ Jesus. Come over to chapter 10, verse 36. Have a look at this verse. Chapter 10, verse 36. It says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You can see the logic that's going on there. There's this new announcement, good news, there is peace available through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And that announcement means there was a time when people didn't have peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you can now have it, then there was a time when you didn't have it. That's the logic. Makes sense, right? And I said before, our our culture teaches us to come up with our own path, find our own meaning. That's how we're meant to live. And our own path about how I'm going to run my life rather than God, rather than what God has to say. See, it's pictured as this exhilarating and this freeing thing by our culture. But the Bible pictures it as a war, a war between us and God. We are at war with God, and so we treat God's voice as one voice among many, as one option among many about how I'm going to run my life, rather than seeing that God deserves our obedience, our worship, our very lives. God deserves it as he's right. All humanity has done this, and all of us have joined in in our own way in this war. And it's an unjust war that we started. It's a totally unjust war, because we owe God our allegiance. And the God that we reject as evil is perfect and good and absurdly generous. God is more generous to his enemies than we even are to our best friends. And the ultimate proof of God's goodness and his love and his generosity is that while we were God's enemies, the Son of God died to bring us peace. That's what verse 36 is saying. Have a look with me again. Verse 36, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The peace here is how Jesus took our place to satisfy God's right anger at us for the way we've treated him so that we could be forgiven. There was a time when you could not have peace with God. People weren't at peace with God. 
But now everyone who trusts in Jesus is at peace with God. This is a famous photo. I'm sure you've seen it before. It was from the end of World War II. It was taken in Bulli, actually. And it was a photo taken when it was announced that there was victory, that the war was over. This war that took six years of conflict across three continents, 70 nations involved, 50 million people dead, and finally, peace. And when, when the news was announced, it, it wasn't the announcement of a ceasefire. It was the announcement of the end of the war. And people took to the streets. Total strangers in Australia, total strangers danced and hugged because the war was over. There was so much happiness, so much joy. That's a picture of the joy at the end of a war. Our war with Jesus, with God, is so much more significant than any world war, any human conflict. God himself, in the person of his son, ends our war with God for everyone who trusts Jesus. That is the deep, deep peace and comfort and security that Christians have. And that peace with God through Christ flows into peace with Christians. It flows out into peace with Christians. Have a look at what the apostles do in verse 28. Verse 28, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. The apostles are really cautious, but then once they realize Saul is a Christian, it says that Saul was with them. He's with them. He's welcomed in by them. He's welcomed as one of their own. This picture of as a rich, united community that's welcomed him in. The peace we have with Christ is meant to flow into peace with other Christians. So let me ask, how are you going with that? How are you going at having peace with other Christians? Is there some Christian in your life, some Christian maybe in the room right now that you have a conflict with, that you need to apologize to, or you need to ask them to apologize and repent? It's worth acting on that. Because that's the kind of community God's creating among us. And the reason we can do this, it can feel really hard to have the same kind of boldness they have. It can be really hard to have the same kind of peace they have. The reason the first Christians do this, they live like this, is because of how Christians are transformed. It's because of how we're transformed, how that actually happens. Uh, Let's leave Saul and we'll flip over to Peter for a second. Have a look at verse 32. We leave Saul behind for a few chapters in Acts. We jump over to the Apostle Peter. Verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. We've got these two stories, Aeneas and Tabitha, we'll see in a second, of this miraculous transformation, this miracle that happens. And notice a couple of things about it. Notice, first of all, this is real. This, what happens to Aeneas here is real. This is not a metaphor. This is not a myth. He's a real man from a real city in a real time in history. And over the course of eight years, how many people would have seen Aeneas paralyzed? And the next time they saw him, he was healed. Eight years he was bedridden, all his muscles atrophied. He needed other people to roll up his mat and take it for him. Peter speaks two sentences and he's healed. He rolls his own mat and he walks away. No surgery, no physio, no painful rehab. It's immediate. 
That's what Peter does. But it's not really what Peter does, is it? Because see what it says again in verse 34. Have a look. Verse 34. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. It's Jesus who does this. It's the power of Jesus that's able to heal him from the kindness of Jesus who wants to heal him. And he's transformed physically by this miracle so that people will trust and follow Jesus. Look at verse 35. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. People don't see the miracle and turn to Peter. They turn to the Lord Jesus when they see Jesus do something that only God can do. And then it happens again. Pete's in Lydda. 12 kilometers down the road is Joppa. Look at verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. I feel like Tabitha is a better name than Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time, she became ill and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Now notice again, this is real. This is not a metaphor. It's not a myth. This is a real woman in a real city, in a real time and place in history. And people saw her alive, and then they saw her die, and then they saw her alive again. And that's what Peter does. But it's not really what Peter does, is it? If we, it's what Jesus does. And Acts, the book of Acts, is actually the sequel to another book called Luke. And if we had just read Luke... And then we read the sequel, Acts. This would have been super obvious to us. Because look at what Jesus does in Luke chapter 7. Can you, my slides have gone again. There we go. Luke chapter 7. Jesus went to a town called Nain. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. This incredible moment, these moments. They're almost unbelievable, but they are real. But see the difference between them. Peter prays, Jesus just does. Peter doesn't raise Tabitha. He prays, and Jesus raises Tabitha. It's the power of Jesus that's able to heal her from the kindness of Jesus who wants to heal her. And he does this. Jesus transforms Tabitha from dead to alive again so that people will trust and follow Jesus. Look at verse 42. The same thing happens. Verse 42. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. This is this dramatic, miraculous transformation that happens here. And there's also all the spiritual transformation that we've already seen in the life of Saul, as Tabitha serves the poor and pours her life out for people, as thousands of people turn to Jesus and have peace with God, as Christians are bold and fearless. And why do they do that? Why do the first Christians do this? What leads them to this? What causes this? What's the source, 
the ultimate source of Christians and churches that look like that verse 31 picture. Because if it's just about trying harder, I don't know about you, but I don't feel very confident that I'm ever going to look like this. If it's just about me trying harder, I don't feel very confident. But it's not about that. Because how these Christians are transformed is by God's generous power. God is the one miraculously transforming them physically, spiritually. God's doing this in them. And the obvious question is, should we expect the same thing right now for us? I've been saying we should strive to be that verse 31 Christians, that verse 31 church. Should we strive for, should we expect the same thing when it comes to the miracles, when it comes to that physical transformation God does here? I'm going to give you the classic pastor answer. Yes and no. (laughs) Let me give you the no first. We shouldn't expect this because in the Bible, physical miracles are rare. They're not common. They only happen sometimes and are for a specific purpose. Someone pointed this out to me recently. It was a good insight. If you track them through, there's really only about four moments of miracles in the Bible. There's some others here and there, but there's really four main moments of miracles in the Bible. They happen with Moses with you know, the plagues and parting the Red Sea and providing water in the desert. And then they happen with Elijah and Elisha. Uh, we heard the story read from Adam of Elisha praying and a, a young boy came back to life again and he calls fire down from heaven and he heals a man named Naaman of leprosy. And then it happens for Jesus. He feeds the 5,000, calms the storm, casts out demons, gives sight to the blind, raises the dead. And then it's the 12 apostles sent by Jesus. They heal the sick, they heal the paralyzed. And that's about it. These four moments that happen across the Bible. It can feel like it happens more than that. And I think why is because it's a little bit like watching cricket. Um, Go with me with this. It's a little bit like cricket. Because in a five-day test match, there is moments of action in cricket across long stretches where not as much happens. And... That's how cricket works. But then if you watch the 10-minute highlights of a five-day test match, it's all action. They don't show you any of the other stuff that happened. It's all action. Uh, And you can imagine that that is what cricket is always like. And you can also imagine that that makes cricket interesting, an interesting sport to watch. Each to their own. I don't think it is. (laughs) But it's the same kind of thing here. These four moments are like the highlight reel of all the miracles that happen across the Bible. They do happen. God does them. God does work through these special gifted people, but they don't happen as often as we might think they do. And each time God does that, he does it for two reasons. He does it to show the kindness and power of God so that people will trust in God. As some people believe it is kind of a basic fact that miracles can't happen. It's just kind of a default. There's laws, there's laws of physics, laws of gravity, all those kinds of laws, and they're fixed and they're unchangeable. So by definition, miracles couldn't happen. That's what some people, I've chatted with friends who believe this. Uh, But I think what the Bible teaches us is that there is no such thing as the laws of physics. What they are is simply the normal way that God chooses to act, the normal way that God governs this world. He usually operates by the laws of physics. That's how the God who governs this world and keeps it spinning, that's how he chooses to act. A miracle is when God changes from what he normally does to show his kindness and power so people will trust in him. Another popular idea is the idea of the God of the gaps. 
You heard this idea of the God of the gaps? I remember first hearing it when I was at school. Uh, The idea is that we need God for all of the gaps, all the things that science can't explain. God is the answer to those. Uh, And so that's what we need. That's what God is for. All the things that are outside what science can explain. There's a couple of problems with that. One of the problems is that the more science explains, the less we'll need a God to fill in the gaps. But the biggest problem is that God is the God of science and the gaps. Science explains really well how things work. Uh, And it's really helpful. There's so many great things that have come through our scientific understanding of how this world operates. Science explains how things work, but science doesn't ever cause anything to work. So if you think about Tabitha for a second, or Dorcas, if you go with that terrible name, Dorcas was alive because God told her heart to beat, beat, beat. Now, science can tell us exactly what was happening physiologically. Where was her blood going? What was happening with the capillaries and auxiliaries and whatever else is going on in the body? Science can tell us that was happening, but her heart was beating because God was saying to it, beat, beat. The same with our hearts right now. And then she died because God said, stop beating. And then her heart was alive again because God said, beat again. Science can explain everything that happened, but God caused it to happen. And he did it to show his kindness and his power so that people would trust him. That's what miracles are for. Miracles are this picture, this kind of sped up picture of what life in the new creation will be like. When God deals once and for all with suffering and pain and sin and death. That's why God does this, to show his goodness, to show his power. He also does it to show that he's at work through the person who does the miracle so people will listen to them. Kind of like endorsing them as being from God. And this is why there's those four moments across the Bible with these four people. Because they're four key people, key groups, and God shines a spotlight on them so that people will listen to them. So think about the people, Moses, Moses brings God's people out of Egypt and God says, listen to him. He is the leader I want you to follow. And Elijah and Elisha, they are prophets at a time when ancient Israel is so close to abandoning God completely altogether. And they speak and they do these miracles to show that they're from God. And then Jesus, God himself, the son of God come in the person of the the son of God come to bring peace between us and God. And then the apostles who take Jesus' offer of forgiveness and salvation to the ends of the earth and who speak for Jesus and who write the Bible, the very Bible that we're reading 2,000 years later. So should we expect this to happen the same now for us? No. Instead of doing the miracles, what we do is we remember them. We remember what was done and we look back to what they point to. That's what we do with the miracles. We remember what they point to. We look back at them. That's how we see the kindness and power of God so we can trust him. They show us the apostles who wrote the Bible are the right people to listen to and to follow to know God. That's the no. Here's the yes. Should we expect them now? Yes. Because the God who did them back then is the same God as right now. The same God who can do anything. And sometimes he has done that for Christians. I'm sure you know stories from when the Bible ends until now, there's kind of 2,000 years uh, I'm sure you know stories of how God has done miraculous things in people's lives. God can totally do that now. And sometimes he does the same things for Christians and for churches. But here's the important bit. He doesn't promise to do them. 
He doesn't promise to do physical miracles. He promises that in the new creation is where he will once and for all deal with suffering and pain and death. Sometimes he does it now because he's generous and kind and he's showing his kindness and power so people trust him, but he doesn't promise to. He does promise though, and we should expect spiritual transformation. I think sometimes we love physical miracles because they're so dramatic. Uh, They're so life-changing. They're more dramatic than spiritual transformation. They're easier to see, for one thing. Uh, But sometimes we can chase those extraordinary experiences and we can miss how just plain, normal, everyday Christian living is actually extraordinary. Sometimes we we look for these extraordinary physical things and we can miss the spiritual transformation that's happening right under our nose all the time. And one of the privileges I get of being a pastor at Salt Church is I get to see this. I get to see this transformation at Salt. I get to see workers who pick a job based on whether they can serve God in their workplace. Who does that? Only God's transformation in us leads us to do that. I see workers who turn down shifts or turn down promotions because they believe it will get in the way of them following Jesus and they don't care if they fall behind in their career or if they get less money. I see couples, engaged and dating couples, who have decided they're not going to have sex until they get married and who ask their friends to keep them accountable to be pure. Who does that in our culture? I've seen singles and people who have a same-sex attraction who trust that God's design, as hard as it is, they trust that God's design for sex and sexuality is between a man, a husband and a wife in a marriage, and they've decided they're not going to act on that. They're going to honor God by not acting on those desires. I've seen people fixing conflicts and giving away money and squashing pride and hating greed and loving hard-to-love people. I've seen us trusting God when we suffer and when we lose things, when we lose friendships, when we lose jobs, when we lose health. Even when people in our church have lost their children, they still trust God. That doesn't just happen. That is God's powerful, transforming work. Normal Christian life is extraordinary. And what causes Christians to do this? What causes Christians to face opposition like this, to have that peace, to be these verse 31 Christians? It's all due to God's transforming, generous, powerful work amongst us. So let me say to the Christians in the room, to me, let's do this. Let's be this. Don't settle for less than God's design. This is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for us, for Salt Church, for all the churches in the Illawarra, for all Christians everywhere. It can feel so unattainable, and so we can become content and satisfied with far too little, far too easily. But don't be okay with that. Be quick to try again if you lose focus and you get distracted. Be quick to forgive Christians and churches that have failed to be this failed to be who they should be quick to apologize if you fail to be this we don't fully look like this we live this imperfectly of course we do the early church lived this imperfectly too but it is a goal worth pursuing because it's god's design for us and he's shaping us to be this and let me say to finish if you wouldn't call yourself a christian this is god's design for your life too 
Come and find peace with God through Jesus. Come and find a better path than you would ever come up with. Come and find a better story to live by. Who your maker made you to be. And I, as I was reading this, I was praying about this. I so long that verse 31 will be true of me and you and all of us and all of the churches across the Illawarra this year. I'm going to pray that God would make that true of us. Why don't you join me in praying? Our great heavenly father, we praise you so much that we can approach you. We can pray to you because of the peace we have through Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. We pray, Lord, for our church and all the churches throughout the Illawarra, throughout New South Wales, across our whole country. Please help us to enjoy from you a time of peace and to be strengthened. Help us to live in the fear of you. Encourage us by the Holy Spirit. Help us to increase in numbers for your glory. Amen.